Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. My guest today is Dana Levinson-Steiner, who serves as a Senior Associate of Leadership and Strategic Partnerships at the Brofman Center for Jewish Student Life at NYU. Most recently, Dana founded and created Chutzpanit from campus to the C-suite, a preparatory and mentorship program for Jewish female undergraduates that aims to close the workplace gender gap. Previously, Dana served as a teaching fellow at the American Hebrew Academy in Greensboro, North Carolina, and as the assistant director of Reshet Ramah, the alumni and community engagement network for the Ramah Camping Movement. Committed to advancing women in both the Jewish communal and professional space, Dana also serves on the board of the Jewish Women's Foundation of New York, volunteers as a mentor in the Young Professional Women's Division of UJA Federation of New York, and is a member of Ladies Get Paid and consults on issues of women's advancement, gender equality, and developing Generation Z female leadership. Might be clear from her bio why I've asked her to be on the program today. This program is designed to give equal time to both male and female leaders. Many of the high-level female leaders I've had on this program speak specifically to their experience as a woman in their position. Mentorship is also a topic that comes up quite frequently in my conversations, so I'm very excited to have Dana on the program to talk a little bit more about her work and the implications for the Jewish community. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Wonderful. So we'll start as we always do with your personal journey and how you got so committed to this work. So I grew up in a really fabulous and really culturally Jewish home that was really invested in Jewish life and learning, but not necessarily in a formal sense, although I attended Hebrew school, synagogue school, although I was always the student who was getting in trouble for talking and for doing things that you know kids do when they've been in school all day. And I can guarantee you that if anyone in my home community could have guessed, they definitely would not have guessed that I would become a Jewish communal professional. But when I was 15, I went on a USY summer program and for the first time in my life really met kids and role models in the staff who really embodied a Judaism that felt accessible, it felt meaningful, it felt real. And that was it. I was totally hooked from there, like any other conservative movement poster child. So my journey as a Jewish communal professional sort of stemmed from that point on. When I was 15, I sort of completed every USY summer program there was and then found myself at Camp Ramah in Nyack, which is a day camp at the staff sleeps there, which is an amazing and phenomenal experience in and of itself. But it was really there for the first time that I thought of Jewish education and Jewish communal life as really a profession. So when I attended university for teaching, I really often found myself drawn back to camp every single summer and really just felt like the most authentic version of myself when I was there. So when I was graduating, I was really at a crossroads to decide whether I was going to go into the public sector or whether I wanted to pursue Jewish education professionally. And I kind of had one of those moments where I knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I graduated from McGill University with my degree in education and found myself in Greensboro, North Carolina at the American Hebrew Academy where I was a teaching fellow and a house parent. So I was there for a year. It was an absolutely incredible experience, phenomenal experience. And while I was there, I got a call to participate in a new master's program at the Jewish Theological Seminary at the Davidson School. 
And I was really interested in their approach to education. I was really interested in this new program that they were working on in partnership with the Jim Joseph Foundation, an experiential education master's program. And I'd never really heard of anything like that. But I knew after being in the classroom that I wanted to explore other avenues to education. And I was really interested in sort of what the story was regarding experiential education. Fast forward two years later, I had graduated from Davidson. I was working for Ramah full-time in their alumni and community engagement sort of sector, which was a phenomenal and incredible experience as well. And I began at the Bronfman Center two and a half years ago. And that has been a complete whirlwind of an experience being able to work in such a dynamic and fluid and exciting space as the college campus because every year it changes. Every minute it feels like it changes, honestly. It was here that I developed Chutzpanit and I really have had such phenomenal support and encouragement from the staff and from the students and it's changed my life and I hope it's changed theirs as well. So was there, you know, a kind of a point in all of this in your journey where you really became aware of not just gender gap, but the discrepancies between males and females in kind of the field that you were working in? I think the first time I noticed it, this is such a specific example. And it's also, I don't know why this is the first one that came to my mind, but I remember when I was in graduate school and I was doing a program called Kesher Hadash, which was an immersive Israel education experience program. And I noticed at the time I was toggling about whether I wanted to stay in Israel and pursue a professional career there or whether I was going to come back to the States. And I remembered, I noticed for the first time that most of the people who were running the organizations that I cared about and was really committed to in Israel were men. And for that matter, they were expat British or American men. And I didn't really see so many women who were at the helm of these educational institutions, either for Israelis or for Americans or Brits or whomever. And I sort of took note and then didn't think anything about it. And what I would, of course, soon discover is that there is a tremendous gender gap at the leadership level in Jewish communal life across the board, considering that the major makeup of Jewish communal organizations at the mid-level range and below an entry level are primarily made up of women at the top it really silos off and just really was problematic to me and is problematic to me. But I think the first time I really noticed it was, you know, five or six years ago. And over time, I've become more aware and have really seen the ways in which women who I think are so talented and so creative and so fantastic are always, it's like, Icarus in some ways, like they're right. flying close to the sun, but they're not, they're getting too close and then become the assistant or the associate or in so many other ways, but they're not quite getting to the top. They're not quite getting, you know, to the sun. So that's something that I am really committed to changing at the university level because for the students who are really interested in becoming Jewish communal professionals, and also in the secular space naturally, but I'm really invested in initiating that leadership pipeline earlier and facilitating interventions that will allow for you know, women-identified students to really find their voice to get where they want to go as professionals. Growing up was very much the, oh, I don't understand why there's gendered only things. Like right. I like it when we're all together. And I think it wasn't until I got a little later in my career that I think there was one job interview. I was just talking to somebody informally over the phone. And they're like, well, you sound really great, but I think they're really looking for a man for this position. Mm. And it was an executive director position. I was like, 
Oh, oh, really? Like that's still a thing? Like, <laughs> yes, that's really what you, okay, I, I see it. It's so still a thing. And I think the interesting piece is we're in this really collective moment right now in 2018, where there's this confluence of conversations happening about gender equity, whether it's because of the rise of the Me Too movement that has really shown a light on some of these really awful things that are happening across industries, but also because of the political discourse over the last 18 months that has really demonstrated this huge lack of gender parity. And it's just the perfect time to sort of initiate these conversations and to really sustain them. And particularly in our field, which in and of itself has gender challenges. I mean, I think while there's so much of Judaism that really supports gender equity and gender equality, there's a lot of Judaism that really doesn't. There's a lot of Judaism that really highlights gender essentialism that says this is what women do and this is what men do and that's immutable. And I think that's hard for many folks who are really trying to get to the next level in their professional career, in their personal career, in clergy, in Jewish communal space, in education. It's really hard. So I think sort of initiating these conversations is a way to name that challenge as well as to offer opportunities to think creatively about how we sort of like work within those structures or work outside of those structures for that matter. So walk us through a little bit about some of these early interventions. I don't want to give your whole program away. <laughs> I'm sure lots of you know labor of love into creating it, but just a taste of what it is that you're hoping to instill in these students that to help break that cycle. The way that I like to see chutzpanit is it's like you would practice for anything. It's like you practice when you take a test. It's like you practice, you know, like riding a bike. There's skills that you over time learn and repeat and develop, and then they become second nature. And that's one of our sort of overarching goals is that for our participants, they learn the information, they absorb the skills, they practice the skills, and then they can apply them in real life situations, in real job situations or internships situations, interview situations, any sort of collegial situation. Those are all things that we really strive to instill now when they are at this really critical point of their professional, educational, social, emotional development that by the time they graduate and enter the workforce, these are skills they've been practicing for years and really feel confident and prepared and ready to not only be able to advocate for themselves and others in the workforce, but really that they will be hopefully the generation that leads this paradigm shift around gender disparity in the workforce. So in terms of the kinds of interventions that we're focusing on, the program meets weekly for 90 minutes and we focus on different subjects that have really either to me been something that I feel like I wasn't prepared for when I entered the workforce and things that I really feel are of value to any person who is going to be an adult in this world. But right. for example, something we talk about is how to humble brag. For so many women, they're conditioned or they're socialized to not want to be upfront about their successes or upfront about their strengths. They want to kind of, you know, pump the brakes and say like, well, I think I'm good at this or, you know, I'm pretty sure that I'm okay in this area. Or they'll say like, you know, people may have said that right. they're not super confident saying like, I'm amazing at this and this right. is why you should hire me. Or I'm really great at this and this is why I'm deserving of this raise. So we work on sort of practicing the humble brag and really identifying the areas of strength for our participants, as well as also identifying areas that they could use as opportunities. If yeah. they know that there's an area that they are struggling in to really 
hone in and practice that skill set. So by the time they enter the workforce or they're at the interview table, they'll feel ready to sort of confront that. What's the statistic that when people are applying to jobs, women apply to jobs that they're, you know, yeah. the 85% yeah. qualified yeah, yeah. and like yeah. 35%? The, the stats are really crazy. I mean, yeah. I'll say in general, there was a study that was done a couple of years ago where it discussed that men are 57% more likely to apply for jobs that they're unqualified for, which is really wild. I mean, the studies also indicate that women are far more risk averse in a number of areas when it comes to investing, when it comes to saving, all of these sort of things, women are far more secure in sort of taking a less aggressive route. But you know, if you don't ask, you won't receive. And I think in many ways, one of the things that we're really encouraging our participants to do is A, to ask and B, to sort of create an opportunity for yourself to really talk yourself up, to really elevate yourself, to have others elevate you. So yeah, I would say one of our sort of core values is the first thing we do is really asking the girls to humble brag and really to harness the power of their story. Some of the other things that we focus on include things like negotiation. We talk about financial feminism. We talk about how investing and saving and the market in general is not gender neutral. So what do women specifically need to do in order to ensure that they've now you know, gotten the raise that they wanted through our skills that we've learned, how they're going to save their money, how they're going to invest their money, and how they're going to be independent. I think one of the things that's really been a primary narrative for women is, oh, don't worry, like you'll marry someone and then, you know, they'll take care of you or your combined income will help take care of you both. And I think for so many women who might get married later in life, who might not get married at all, that self-sufficiency is really, really key. And we want to help instill that value in them now. So they are really prepared for their futures. And another really big part of the program is we have a men as allies session where we bring in men to talk about the ways in which they are participating in opportunities for gender equity, either in school or in their jobs or in business school, because you can't change the paradigm on gender equity with only 50% of the population being in the room. So while we see Chutzpanit as a space where women can feel confident and secure and safe in not only learning, but also sharing and being vulnerable, we also acknowledge that there is room for that conversation for men. We invite men to participate in that conversation. And we hope that through that intentional discourse that while the women are learning these phenomenal things, they can also have really impactful and meaningful experiences in promoting gender equity with men when they ultimately get to the workforce. Right. And then in a lot of ways, you know, not to sound trite about it, but we're kind of our own worst enemy in these things. Yeah. And thinking we're not good enough. I actually was just listening to an interview by Malcolm Gladwell, and he was talking about purposefully doing a bad job in the things you don't want to be doing, that your boss doesn't give you those assignments anymore Mm -hmm. because you did a bad job in it. And in my head, I'm like, what? Do a bad job in anything? Like I would never have, and I would never do it, right? I would never purposefully do something not to the fullest of my ability because I didn't want to do it. Right. And, you know, I think self-sabotage is something that we do to protect ourselves from disappointment, to protect ourselves from what we think is out of our reach or impossible. I mean, we hear about imposter syndrome all the time. It's Mm -hmm. something that starts 
so young elementary school girls are internalizing I'm not good at this or I'm not good enough for this. I just recently had a participant who shared with me that she was invited to a lunch for folks who were qualified for and should apply for Fulbright scholarships. And she said, I think they sent the wrong person the email. I don't know why I got this. And the answer is because you're amazing and you're smart and you're talented and they emailed you about this scholarship opportunity because you're worthy of this. And the fact that she had to go through all of the scenarios of, oh, they couldn't have possibly meant to send this to me or, you know, I'm not smart enough for this. Why would they think that? That imposter syndrome is so real. It's so internalized. And when we were having our session together as a group, all of us were like, girl, what are you doing? Like, go to that lunch. (laughs) Like, of course you were invited to this. You're amazing and you're smart. But that self-sabotage sets us up so that way we don't feel disappointed. And sort of the other side of the coin is, you know, we talk extensively in Chutzpanit about female rivalry. We talk a lot about it because it is very real. And also everything we do in Chutzpanit, while it may have a particular grounding in sort of secular ideas, also is through a Jewish lens. So when we talk about female rivalry or competition or reimagining the narrative around female rivalry and competition, we actually talk about Sarai and Hagar. And we discuss the ways in which they were sort of set up to fail as sisters and support one another. And how can we reimagine that narrative in a way that allows for both of them to experience success? And how do we use that ideal as what we want to do in terms of supporting our other sisters in this experience? So it kind of comes at you from both sides, right? You have your own self, you know, devaluing yourself and then other women really struggling to get to the next level and seeing other women as a threat to their success when in actuality, you know, it's like if we think of the job market as a pie and there's only a really small slice for women in the C-suite, the challenge isn't that we need to be carving less spaces for women. We need to make more pie is really what right. it comes down to. So yeah, that's definitely a real challenge. Or even in the rising tides, right? If your colleague yeah. does something really awesome and, you know, you can be a part of celebrating and uplifting that, it'll only be better for kind of mm-hmm. the culture of your organization of which you can also succeed in. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what I failed to mention in your intro is that you're also a PhD student in education and Jewish studies at NYU. Yes. Um, So talk to me a little bit about how this work you're doing relates to your thesis work and what that focus is. It's been really interesting, actually. So when I initially started the program, I wasn't really sure what my research direction was going to be in. And in many ways, it sort of found me. And in the last several months, when it's become clear that this is the direction that I really want to go in, I've taken some really phenomenal classes that have really shaped my research experience, have really shaped my reading list, have allowed me to meet some phenomenal professors and peers. And a class I just took this past semester actually really was the best and introduced me to a professor who is such a role model to me and is so incredible. So the class was called Gender Inequality in Schools. And that was interesting for a number of reasons, not only because it really discusses the ins and outs of how schools shortchange girls, but it also highlighted so many challenges we have around the questions of how we're educating and raising boys, which is a whole other topic that's been really discussed often in the media lately. Mm -hmm. I know New York Magazine just did a huge cover story called How to Raise a Boy. Fascinating stuff. 
most people come into a PhD program and they like know what they're going to be doing. And I think for me, I A, didn't know what I was going to be doing. And B, because it keeps evolving over time, I think where I've sort of landed is that I want to root why chutzpah eat is an effective intervention for emerging adults, for women identified emerging adults, and then root it sort of in gender theory, among other things. And sort of look at the ways in which Jewish communal life, in addition to sort of just secular professions, have either allowed for or have really fought against gender equity and to determine what interventions are necessary in order to make significant change in these spaces. So that's sort of what I'm hoping to accomplish in my research, in my work. But I'm also looking at it so much earlier than just as emerging adults in college, I actually recently submitted a paper about gender performance in Orthodox nursery schools and gender identity and gender socialization begins so early. It begins at two, three years old. And once that's sort of cemented, you know, by the time children are six or seven years old, it's really difficult to work backwards once they're in college or they're in high school and they're sort of trying to figure out how to represent themselves and how to advance themselves. And it begins so much earlier than that. So I'm trying to look at it somewhat holistically, starting early in emotional and social and gender identity development and looking at it by the time they are old enough in college to sort of start assessing like what are the interventions necessary in order to make a real and impactful shift in this domain. Right. And do you provide anything? Because I don't know, I just feel like there's so much for younger professionals, which is fantastic. But then what happens once, you know, you're in the field, you know, mentorship in so many different kind of parts of our career is so important or having some kind of, you know, professional group or something in which you can say, oh my gosh, such and such just happened. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been somewhere for two years and I'm I'm kind of at the same pay. And I know that other people have gotten raises, but I don't know like how to ask for it. Kind of the taking these a little more theoretical things that you're implanting kind of young in their Mm -hmm. work and pulling that through kind of the lifeline of their careers. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but it seems like there's a focus on your volunteer with the Young Professionals yeah. Women's Division. And there's, yeah. you know, Advancing Jewish Professionals is kind of more of a young professionals group in New York City. And I just feel like then you get to the, and not family or children for everybody, but to the mid-career and those kind of ways to connect to empower you mm-hmm. are kind of less available. I would say stay tuned because last year I began to have several informal conversations with female colleagues sort of around my age range about this topic in particular, which is, you know, we're all either in middle or somewhat above middle management. We're sort of figuring out what comes next in terms of how we escalate up the leadership sort of matrix because we know the latter is not a thing anymore. Shout out to Leading Edge. So I think for us, at least with my cohort of women in our various roles within Jewish communal life, we're having these conversations. We're thinking about how we can advocate for support and you know create a working group, I guess, for many of us. Because it seems as though, to your point, that there isn't a sort of tailored working group for Jewish communal women that's probably not 
informal. It sort of reminds me of Jessica Bennett's book, Feminist Fight Club. And she talked about how she had this informal group of women who worked in media or communications, and they would sort of come together and have wine and fetch about their bosses and complain about situations that were happening. But it was more than just fetching and complaining. It was really creating a vulnerable space for women to share about what they were experiencing at work. And Mm -hmm. it was a space for them to talk about their salaries transparently. It was a space for them to talk about harassment or also a space for them to talk about their successes. But that began as something that was quite informal. And I think that's something that I and several of my colleagues are trying to figure out. How do we take these conversations that are happening informally and formalize them in a way that feels like it's going to move the needle in terms of how Jewish communal professionals advance in their roles, how they advocate for themselves. You know, every year when I read the forwards sort of like assessment of the salary survey, it is like the most depressing thing you'll ever read <laughs> in your life. And, you know, we talk about it and we talk about it and it raises eyebrows. And then it's like everyone moves on with their lives. So I think the thing is that everyone moves on with their lives, except for the women who are getting paid less right. and they have to go back to work and work really hard and get paid less. So, you know, I think for myself and many of my colleagues, we're trying to think about how do we create a working group that really creates and facilitates recommendations to different Jewish communal organizations in a real way. Because while I know many organizations are doing this, maybe on a grassroots level or on a singular organizational level. And yes, I have seen that many, I think 50 plus clergy signed on or an organization signed on to say like, we are committed to equal pay or we're committed to gender equity, we're committed to gender equality. And yet it's not a widespread commitment across Jewish communal life and Jewish professional life. Well, and a lot of them are kind of operating in the dark, right? As this religious organization, they don't have to disclose how much they are getting paid like other nonprofits do. And they can operate in a space where if nobody knows nobody knows, right? Right. Absolutely. And I think also organizations can certainly justify why they don't need to pay or they don't need to promote gender equity. They can say they're committed to it, but then uphold pay scales that don't reflect that. I think something that I don't have the answer now, and I'm sure on like local and grassroots levels, women and men are having these conversations, but it's something that I've been thinking a lot about with my colleagues and peers And we're ready. We're ready to really bring it to the next level. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before returning to my conversation with Dana, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, David Katz-Nelson, the executive director of Reboot, who discusses with me the unique nature of Reboot's program platform and its relevance to the broader Jewish community in providing an avenue for personally engaging with Jewish tradition. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. The issue is, is that there's a lot of change that's going on around us. And every study that's done basically comes out with the same thing. And that is, there's a hell of a lot of millennials around. There's a hell of a lot of people in the Generation X world and, you know, give or take other generations in between. And They're looking for more of a personalized experience. What they're not looking to do is to be thrust into a huge building with a already creative community that they are not completely sure that feels like them. I think it's a challenge for us as an entire community of how to best serve a majority of the people who we want in our community. 
So here I am. I've totally drunk the Kool-Aid. Part of the reason that I feel that Reboot is such a vital and necessary organization is because that's the work that we do. We do the work in creating opportunities for people who don't necessarily want to engage in the traditional ways to still have a deep, deep Jewish experience in different ways. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with David in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Dana. So I kind of want to focus a little bit, and obviously pay is different in this particular scenario, but the lay leadership gender equality versus the professional Mm -hmm. um, gender equality. I did a study when I was an intern at National Council of Jewish Women out in Los Angeles, specifically for the Los Angeles area, looking at this very issue. And what I found was the professional wise, executive level wise was pretty equal. And there was one female CEO who's making like $600,000. So totally Mm -hmm. threw off all the pay scale for kind of the equality of it. But really when I, you kind of looked at what was public data, it was pretty equal. When I looked at the presidents of these organizations and the presidents of our synagogues Mm -hmm. and clearly the clergy, because that's a legacy we have to kind of work through as far as inequality with with clergy. But I was really surprised that their lay leadership was so incredibly unequal. And I don't know if that was a function of these are people that are coming from the secular world where there's maybe less support and encouragement of women to be in professional positions, which is kind of any of your observations, some of the differences between gender inequality in professional roles versus the lay leadership role. Yeah. I mean, what I would really say about that is two things. The first is that I have read several studies and have, you know, been exposed to in my numerous Jewish communal settings, obviously, the disparity in sort of female-led boards and synagogue presidents and things like that. I remember who did this study. I think it was called like Power and Parity, and it was about sort of this gap in leadership, particularly, I think, across like federation boards primarily and how it was really very few women at the top. I would say one of the things I've really been noticing is an increase in female leadership on several boards, at least of the communities that I've been a part of and have Mm -hmm. seen. I know for the Bronfman Center, we have had a female board co-chair for the last several years, who's just like an incredibly awesome person. And a lot of women who I really respect and admire are currently in leadership positions in a lay leadership capacity, my mother included. So I think that I unfortunately don't have enough data in terms of the lay leadership capacity. And I think part of that is also because I'm really so focused on advancing women and girls that I find myself in spaces that are primarily made up of women and girls. So that's like a a real, a real, a real thing. But I would also say that I feel that there's still a long way to go in that respect. And I know that Schiffer, Bronznik and team really sort of demonstrated that there's still a long way to go in leveling the playing field. So that came out maybe 10 years ago. So there's Mm -hmm. been progress, but there's always room for more. So that's sort of my hot take. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's, you know, as you mentioned, sort of the male and female training aspects of this work that it's not just sort of focused on females. It's, you know, helping men realize if you're the president of a board, like, look at your board. Is there a female that you think is just your board secretary? Right. You'd be really awesome. Have you ever thought about, you know, coming into the leadership pipeline and eventually being president? And I can only imagine like, no, 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 you know, I just, I'm fine where I'm at. But if right. nobody ever asks them or, or encourages Correct. them or, or sees well, them in leadership. Well, I think that's always the thing that we don't 
often ask men to sort of figure out how they want to put their values in action. And Schiffer Brunswick talks about this a lot, particularly in her work with men as allies, where for so many of these men, it's it's so clear that they are actually invested right. in gender equity, but it's a paradigm shift. They haven't thought about like, oh, this panel's all men. That is problematic. Or wow, like this board or this search committee is majority men and like two women. Like, how is this problematic? So sometimes it's not necessarily saying to men, you need to do better or you need to do this. It's saying, how do you want to act on this? How do you want to move this organization or this board or this search committee forward with the values of the organization that we're working for, which naturally and hopefully encompasses some version of gender equity. So it's sort of reframing the question and really asking them to think, how do you want to be an agent of change in this conversation? So, Or even um, just being aware of it, right? It's okay yeah. if a man is better fit for a position than a woman is. Like, that's okay. But for sure, aware, like organizationally of... Oh, well, we've had like 10 men as our board president for the last, you know, like maybe 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> there's right. a really, but even just like in a personal level, there's a really awesome woman who I know is really great, who would do a really great job at this. And maybe she's a little encouragement to get there. And it right. kind of goes back to a lot of the mentorship stuff. Right. A man can mentor a woman into a higher leadership position where she might not have seen herself in that capacity. Absolutely. Um, just as much as a woman can do that for another woman. Absolutely. And I think while in terms of mentorship, I think something that I found really interesting is that while mentees obviously get so much out of the mentorship experience, mentors also get a ton out of the mentorship experience. I think that, you know, it goes both ways. And it's something that I think is really underutilized a lot in our spaces. There's this great book called Tripping the Prom Queen. It talks a lot about female rivalry and how to work through that and to really get women to support one another to reach a common goal of gender equity and equality. And she mentions that, you know, in the 60s, there was this incredible movement with second wave feminism and these women were just doing such phenomenal and groundbreaking things. And then there was this weird gap where those same women who were fighting the good fight actually weren't mentoring the next generation of women. So there was this lapse in leadership. There was this lapse in sort of creating or even sustaining this pipeline. And I found that to be so interesting. And I think some of it really returns to this idea that at our core, like women still struggle to say like, I want to support other women, but also I'm nervous that my job or my leadership or my whatever will be taken from me by somebody else, you know, because we're all fighting for sort of the same piece of the pie. But I think mentorship in so many ways allows for both the mentor and the mentee to benefit because ultimately we're moving people forward. So I think that that's something that's super, super valuable. I have had so many mentors in my personal and professional life who've really just been my people and something that we were really, really striving for in the development of this program was not only to offer these hard skills to our participants, but also to ensure that they had someone who could kind of talk them through different processes to be a source of wisdom to them, to be a springboard for networking and other things. And on behalf of the mentors to really it's a really reflective practice in sort of their own experience as professionals, as women, for many of them as mothers. A lot of our participants talk a lot about like, how do I do it all? And how do I have work-life balance? And how do I have a family? And how do I not get locked into, you know, like the second shift of like you work all day and then you come home and like you're still working. So I think 
having that wisdom and that knowledge really allows for our participants to feel braver and more confident. And I think the same results in our mentors as well, that they also feel braver and more confident in being able to mentor and really like hone someone's development. Well, on that note, I'd love to hear some advice that you might have for younger professionals, older professionals, middle of the road professionals, male, female. It's a broad topic. Is there anything you you think is helpful to kind of keep in mind as we go through our own professional journeys? This first piece of advice comes from one of my mentors, Cheryl Megan, who said, never, ever, ever, ever take a job without a written job description. So I think that's an excellent piece of advice. Not only because I think like fundamentally you shouldn't take a job without job description for so many reasons, but I also think it really taps into this idea of how you value yourself and sort of how you take control sort of over your professional future. And that's like a great foundational level of how you see yourself and how you see yourself rising in your organization. So I think that's a good piece of advice. So thank you, Cheryl. In terms of other advice, I would say if you don't ask, you won't receive. I think there's so much fear, fear of rejection, fear of being told no, fear of how it's going to make you feel if someone says like, sorry, we can't give you that raise this year or like, we can't give you that promotion. But so in fearing that rejection, we just don't ask at all. And I think that we need to ask. Because sometimes, and more often than sometimes, we'll find that you do receive what you ask for. You will get that raise. You will get that promotion. You will get that increase in your portfolio. You'll get that support. But oftentimes, we don't ask in a way that allows us even the opportunity to sort of get from point A to point B. So I would definitely say um, to ask. And find yourself a good girl gang. And guys can be in that too. But really find yourself a good team who can really elevate you, can understand objectively where you're strong, but also understand objectively where there's room for opportunity and then know who those people are to turn to them at different pivotal points in your life and to really have your support team. So really identify who your gang is. Awesome. That's all very good advice. (laughs) Um, And so how do you keep it all together? You're a PhD student, you have a job, you're a volunteer in these many different places, you know, bolstering your work, which is fantastic. How do you do it? Such a good question. You know, listen, I could do better, right? I could do better in learning how to say no. I think part of what drives me is this deeply rooted desire to change the world. And I think part of the ethos of wanting to change the world is that you can't give yourself a break. And I think one of the things that I need to work on for myself is to like really take the time to be present you know, with my husband, with my friends, with my family, and to really practice self-care in a way that a lot of us don't do. Particularly for women, there's this value of like, you got to hustle. And like, when you're not working, you should be working. And I Mm -hmm. think for myself, I try and keep it together by trying to be present, to try and really turn off my phone or not check my email or go to movies with my husband or, you know, just to take that time for myself to just be. But I would say that there's always room for improvement. There's always opportunities for me to continue to learn and to grow. And I think part of that is to acknowledge that like you can't always do it all and to really just like lean into that and to say, okay, I'm doing everything I can. And sometimes even, even I need to take a break and knowing that's not a sign of weakness too, I guess. Right. Understanding when you need that and that that's okay. Mm -hmm. 
That's not always easy to do. (laughs) Definitely not. Wonderful. So we've touched upon a lot of different pieces of your work, which is all fantastic. Is there anything that we haven't touched upon or that you've kind of been thinking about while we've been talking that you wanted to circle back to? I think what's really interesting, this podcast is called It's Who You Know. I've been thinking a lot about how in our profession, in Jewish communal life, it's so much about who you know, and it's so much about who is the person who elevates you or who says like, you know, I think you'd be really good for this role or like, have you thought about being a part of this volunteer community? So I think something I've been thinking a lot about is how to sort of capitalize on that, like it's who you know piece and creating like a network or helping to facilitate because I know these networks exist, right? We've discussed before, like right. advancing Jewish professionals or so many young Jewish professional and not so young Jewish professional movements, but really thinking about how to continue that value for people who are entering the field. I met with someone this morning who just moved to New York is sort of in between things and, you know, said the first time she moved here for work, it took her three months to find a job because she didn't know anyone. It was really an overwhelming process for her. And now she's worked in a space for a couple of months and it's time to move on to another space. But by having access to working within that organization in New York, everyone's been reaching out and saying to her like, oh my God, I think you'd be great for this role, for this role, for this role, for this role. And she said it really brought tears to her eyes how, you know, a year ago she was like, I'm never going to find a job. I'm going to have to move back to my parents. I don't know what I'm going to do. And now having that just access point to so many people who can help her, it's like night and day. So I don't have the answer, but really just thinking more broadly about how to create that support system for emerging Jewish professionals who don't necessarily have that access point, who don't know people in the same way. It's been on my mind a lot today and on my mind a lot for my graduating seniors who are also interested in becoming Jewish communal professionals. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe we could turn this into like a live meetup situation. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess there's a a question that I have for you. So the group that you currently run is done in person, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Is there any thought of taking this virtual, taking this online? It's a great question. I mean, my goal is to start scaling. Right now, we are doing the program at NYU. And because the Bronfman Center serves Lower Manhattan and many other schools, we have students in the cohort who are not only NYU students. We've had Fordham students. We've had other students as well. But, you know, my hope is to expand the program as widely as possible with partners. So that's something that we're really hoping. But yeah, there's no reason why at some point in the future, this can't be a virtual experience, considering that so much of our universe exists in our palm of our hand. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why We can't expand to webinars. We can't expand to sort of like digital meetups. I absolutely see that as a possibility. Just not quite yet, but we'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. I just feel like what you've created and, you know, will create through your PhD program, you know, not only is easily replicable, you know, in in many different places, but then, and I'm sure you feel this more obviously than I do, but you want to get it out, right? You want more people to access this information and to have this experience of which makes them feel empowered to have the tools that they need to be successful in their careers and and Mm -hmm. not not be their own worst enemy. So wonderful. Well, Dana, I wish you the best of luck with all of your work. Thank you so much for talking to us about everything you're working on. And thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And hopefully we only see things continuing to go in a positive direction when it comes to these issues of gender and pay equality. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We are without a doubt at an important point in American history when it comes to the role of women in our society. We see this clearly in our own Jewish community 
as the next generation of female leaders are proving their worth and demanding appropriate accommodations to have both a family and a successful career in leading important endeavors in our community. What Dana is looking at is how do we train our young female leaders to gain the self-worth to be able to see themselves in those traditionally male roles? Fortunately, they also have far more examples of strong Jewish women leaders in our organizations to look to and exclaim, I want to be like that one day. That is how I got my start on this career path. The very inspiring executive director of the first organization I worked for, Sivia Schwartz-Getzig. As more of these women emerge, not only in our community, but in business and government, it's important to teach young leaders the skills to get there as well. And looking at these gender issues, it's difficult to not think about the flip side, to not let those efforts discourage the male leaders in our community to strive for the same successes, but to help them understand the unique barriers women face in pursuing those same goals and looking both at the women they work for and the women who work for them and think about the ways they could be supporting and lending a hand in some important areas that might just come more naturally to men. There is no truer statement in this issue than the value of rising tides lift all boats. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, how to start your own podcast, and more on our website. It's whoyouknowthepodcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Music